I first heard of Brian Culp through Twitter. He was very funny and opinionated. I listened to his music on Spotify, and, well, I have to say, I was surprised to hear his enormous talent. There was such a huge disparity between the sweetness and tenderness of his voice, which reminded me of my favorite 1970s folk artists, and the direct brusque approach he took to total strangers over the internet. Look, he just had a gift from God. Truly one of the best singers I've heard in recent years. Which made me wonder, who is the man behind the microphone? So I decided to find out. Ryan, you're the man behind the microphone. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am good. I actually spent most of today listening to some of your albums. And Ryan, I have to start off by asking, in 2009, who broke your heart? Great question. I don't know if I'm able to say that for legal reasons. I actually have had to communicate with this person a few times over the years, literally for the same reason as right now. Hey, can I say your name? Am I allowed to say your name on TV? Am I allowed to say your name on the radio? And each time this person said no. So I suppose third time's a charm. But yeah, it was a girl I dated in high school. I knew for many, many years prior to that. We grew up in the same neighborhood, like two streets down from age five. We were good friends. And then we started dating and we thought we would be the high school sweetheart kind of thing. My first album was all about her and she thought it was okay. And we broke up. So it was a foreshadowing because at the time of the album, everything was good. But I'd also just gotten out of a band and switched to being a solo artist. And my band actually, in another way, broke my heart because this band had stolen all of my gear and sold it for drugs. It was a screamo band, so it was also like very different genre. I got into the singer-songwriter thing, wrote the album that you listened to about this girl. But yeah, keen observation. I have so many questions. Let's start at the very beginning. We're going to pick up on all of that after. First, for my listeners, tell me your story. What got you involved in music? And can you take me through your musical journey? My passion for music started at eight. I don't think that's very early. Honestly, I think a lot of us start to love music when we are five, six, seven, eight years old. But for me, at the time, I was born in 1990. This was the era of Britney Spears, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys. And my dad went on a lot of business trips. And whenever he went on a trip, he would get my younger brother and I a little present as a way to say sorry for being gone for a few days. And he was gone probably three days a week for my whole childhood, actually. So I got a lot of these small presents and my brother would choose G.I. Joe's and I would choose an album. And I remember getting Hanson and Backstreet Boys and Youngstown and all of the pop groups that were huge at the time. And I would make mixtapes and I would watch TRL all day. And again, I think a lot of this is maybe common amongst 90s kids, but there was just some extra layer to my interest in music. And when I had my first opportunity to play it was alongside everybody else, fifth grade, get the recorder, you learn hot cross buns. And I think I flew through the book in a day or two. I just had this insatiable desire for more knowledge, more music theory. This was all clicking. All the things that I had been thinking about, oh, like this note's sharp, this note's flat, and all these things, putting words and vernacular to previously just an innate sense of what music's about. I'm not a lot of things, but if I had to give myself one label, I would have to say I'm a musician. It's something that's in my bones and everything that I do now and that I've done for the last 15 years of being an adult is really just to pay bills. I would never classify myself as these other titles that you might see me throwing around on Twitter or in blog posts. I think this is the first time I've ever interviewed with someone to actually talk about this instead of product market fit and coding and things like that. I talk to a lot of people about product market fit and coding. I live in Austin. I'm glad you think that's funny. It's the whole tech scene here. So I have a few questions. 
You say you blew through the music book. By the way, I have to say, when I was playing the recorder, it was really bad because my hands are small, so I couldn't get over all the little things you, the holes. It's called I Don't Know Anything for a Reason. I just couldn't do it. My little brothers ended up breaking my recorder because I was so bad at it, and they just didn't want to hear it anymore. So you have this innate talent for music that emerged at a young age, right? Well, okay, how many times did someone try to challenge you for first chair for violin? Some of the details are hazy, but I believe around once, maybe twice per semester, you could be challenged. I don't know if I ever lost a challenge in terms of performance ability, but I was demoted to second chair at least twice in high school just for bad behavior. If you're in high school and you play in band or orchestra, that's like 37% of your identity, right? Most of your identity is not up to you. You go to school, you do what your parents tell you to. So you get to express yourself in only a few ways, being good at video games, being good at some instrument, being good at football. And so that was a great way to keep me at bay, was demoting me to second chair. So you were in orchestra, that was part of your identity, and dating this girl who you wrote an album about. The guy wrote an album about me. I would not ever say it was just okay. Even if it was awful, I'd be like, wow, it's so amazing. I feel like a real-life muse. So you wrote an album about this woman and produced it. Can you tell me about what that was like, your journey in developing yourself as a musician? Specifically that first album, thinking about today's chat, I dug up all of my notes from that first album. It is in one of those brightly colored folders you get from the school supply section before you go to fifth grade. And every sheet is laminated, like what you put baseball cards in. And then I had lots of pencil and pen scribbles on top of the papers when I made last minute changes. And, you know, at this spot, I want to convey more emotion this way. So it's a cool little relic. It's only valuable to me. That whole album is in a physical format in my closet. And that was a really meticulous process for me. I thought it would be a little more introspective over multiple months type of ordeal where I'd record it and I'd listen to it and I'd get feedback. Instead, it was like I'm driving home from the studio going, I should have done all these things differently. And I think that taught me a lot about just the creating process. Something doesn't exist when it's just in your head. And a lot of people, including myself sometimes, get stuck with keeping these ideas in our head. You have to put it to paper, whatever that means in your discipline. Songwriting, obviously, you have to make it a WAV file, right? And then you can reflect, and the more times you can reflect, the better you get. So you just have to keep writing songs. Since then, I've tried to write an album every year or two. I really like that first one. I listened to it, I think, maybe 10, 12 times today. Yes, a lot of times. And actually, the story you just gave me, there are a lot of lines in your album that point towards your eventual future with this girl. Like, unimpressed by me, picture of our destiny.
did you make this album because you were feeling her stray away and you wanted to win her heart? Was this album a love manifesto to this girl? There's a really specific detail that went into the first album. To give a little context, think about music for a second. Think about your favorite songs, your favorite artist. It's almost always the case that the singer is the protagonist. It's a three-minute story where something didn't go well and the other per it's their fault. Or even if it's the inverse, the singer is still always taking that role of the protagonist. And in 2008, when I was 18 and started writing this first album, I thought to myself, like, isn't that unrealistic? Can't they sometimes be the antagonist? Aren't they sometimes wrong? How is it possible to take an artist seriously when they're always the one who's right? And why are artists always writing 50 different breakup and love songs if they're such a great person who's always right? Why isn't every artist happily married for 20 years? Why do artists actually seem to have the most defunct relationships, the most drama in their lives? So there's something's not right here. All artists are liars. Even Joni Mitchell, you think Joni Mitchell's a liar? One of my favorite artists, he's very newish, so he's not a Joni Mitchell or other artist you've been asking me to sing songs to. Ben Rector. He's not top 40. He tours around, plays piano, guitar, it's kind of soft rock. It's because it's girl music. I like it. And he has a song where he says, I make a living writing love songs I made up because I love songs. And when you hear his music, you think all of these songs have to be real. Like he's one of those kinds of singers. Like when you listen to Elton John, you really think he's singing about women he actually loves. And this guy has that vibe too. And I'm sure some of the songs are about his wife or his daughter, but he has so many of them. And there's so many breakups and good songs and bad songs, but he's only got one wife. I also remember looking into Billy Joel once and he's had a few wives. Two of them have been on the record of saying, he's great with those words with the piano. It's not how he acts at home. They weren't accusing him of being particularly abusive or anything, but something else comes out when you're creating art that isn't necessarily accurate. And I think a lot of musicians aren't willing to talk about that. And I didn't want to do that. So the first album is True Stories, where I expose the bad traits. And that was one way I wanted to differentiate the music. You really pride yourself on your honesty, Ryan. That's something that comes across very clearly to anyone who looks at your online presence. I think even in your website, you have something that's like, I'm not a bull****, I'm Ryan Culp, it's my tagline. Two questions on that. Musicians will keep an aura of mystery between them and their music to protect themselves from parasocial relationships and other weird things. I think people feel an emotional connection with musicians more so than they do with other types of performers, right? I guess people get parasocial relationship actors, but when I go online, the strangest fan groups are always for musicians, like Beyonce stands, Taylor Swift stands. These people have hive minds. Were you ever nervous about that happening to you, you know, being very forthcoming and honest with your music? It's available to everyone. Anyone can listen to your whole life history. How does that make you feel? I have had a few of those types of people approach me online, and actually I've just gone ahead and met some of them. You met your stalkers? Yeah, I've met a couple stalkers. What? You just were like, oh, this person sending me lots of weird messages. It's totally a good idea to meet them. You're not going to glaze over that, Ryan. Tell me everything right now. Okay, sure. So one example, it was 2006, 2007. I had been making videos on YouTube every week or two. Some song would come on the radio, you know, Lifehouse, Hey There Delilah, something like that. And I would just immediately make a video and put it online. Okay, so I've got some requests to maybe do uh, Hey There Delilah, so here we go.
thousand miles away But girl, tonight you look so pretty Yes, you do Times Square can't shine as bright as you I swear it's true Hey there, Delilah Don't you worry about the distance I'm right here If you get lonely Give this song another listen Close your eyes Listen to my voice It's my disguise I'm by your side Oh, it's what you do to me 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 What you do to me And this is early days of YouTube. I would make a video and I started getting thousands of comments. I'd come home from high school as a junior and just read 300 comments and then do my homework. And these comments made me mentally tough, I think. That's one of the best things that happened to me as a teenager was being told literally hundreds of times a day, you're great, you suck, I like your voice, too loud, too quiet, not good enough. It was good and bad. It was good and bad. I would say mostly good, but I got a lot of comments on everything that had nothing to do with music. And in the mix, I started getting private messages from the stands. I would just engage. Again, partially, I was just a naive kid. And I was lucky that obviously nothing bad ever happened to me. But a few of them made enticing offers. And that's what helps break down the barrier of it feeling like a stalker or it feeling like a serendipitous connection that you made online. And that's the whole reason that you put yourself out there is to get connected. And one of these people offered me a gig in New York City I thought, that's great. And I'm like 17. This is 2007. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get you the gig and you're great and blah, 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 and we'll get you a place to stay. So I tell my parents, like, I need to go to New York City to play a gig. I convinced them to make that my Christmas present to fly to New York. And my dad said, under no circumstance can you go without me or an adult. So my dad and I go to New York and we get there to play this gig, which was supposed to be a couple of days later. And this guy comes to LaGuardia, picks us up. Very clearly is not a promoter for a concert venue. Within a few minutes, he realized he's like, yeah, the, the gig, we're still figuring it out. We're not sure. It's like, there was no gig, right? And he's like, but anyway, let's just go to sleep. So we hop on a bus. So my dad and I, for maybe four days, sleep at this stranger's house in Queens who I met through YouTube, who promised me a paid show. And that was the first time I met, I don't want to call him a stalker fan. And honestly, he might listen to this. I saw him a few times more. Yeah, it was just strange. And, and that kind of thing happened maybe a few times. But each time, nothing too sketchy occurred. I never felt unsafe. But some people are just off. But people who are off doesn't mean that they want to kill you. Just makes for an interesting story. Did you give him a private concert? You're shaking your head. So you just hung out at his house for four days? Hung out at his house a few days. Actually, it got not worse. It got just weirder. I visited New York a couple more times after that over the next few years during college. And the times that I visited, I saw him once or twice. And then fast forward like seven years later, I was living in New York and I had an apartment. And he hit me up and said, you know, do you want to get a drink or something? And it was definitely a work night. I remember saying like, maybe, but you know, I have to go to work. And he said, let's just do a quick drink. So we meet up, we go to my apartment and you could tell he's woozy. And I said, all right, dude, you know, you can just crash the couch. And so I get up the next morning and he hears me shuffling around. He wakes up. First of all, I noticed we had a bottle of rum the night before. It was more than halfway gone. And I know it was a new bottle because we bought it on the way to my apartment the night before. So he was just straight drinking, I don't know, at least 30 ounces of liquor. Okay. 
And then as he sits up on the couch, I kid you not, a piece of deli cheese falls off the side of his face. So he must have been snacking and just passed out on the snacks like the cheese platter. And I kind of gave him this look. And within a minute or two, I guess he got out of there and I never saw him again. Ryan, I think this guy might have just been in love with you. So I think so. He used to send me books and I looked on the inside of the jacket and it appears that they were stolen from his high school library because they had, you know, all of the markings of a checked in, checked out and that kind of thing. Dewey Decimal System. So he was stealing these books and his favorite book was Perks of Being a Wallflower, which has some darkness to it and an unrequited love. And I think he was into that. I think he was into the fact that I wasn't going to be into him. He also really, really loved Ketra Narai. Again, some things off, but since New York is unconstitutional, you can't have guns there. I was never concerned. Even if someone's weird, it doesn't mean I have to avoid them. I can embrace it and hopefully live to tell the story. And I've done that a few times since then. That's a side effect of putting yourself out there, but I would say when cost benefit, it's still just totally worth it because for every one stalker stan weirdo, you're going to get a lot more people who are super normal. I mean, I've had people, and I'm a nobody for anybody listening, absolutely nobody with all of this, but I've had people saying that they listen to one of my songs on repeat and it fixed their marriage. I've had real, and I haven't said that to anybody until right now, but I've had weird experiences like that that make it worth it to keep going even if my Spotify album gets 100 plays. What song fixed their marriage? I'm not going to say. What if someone is listening to this and they need their marriage fixed? You're not saying the name of the couple. You're just saying the song of yours that has healing powers. Come on, what is it, Ryan? That's like pitching and saying, I have a solution. Don't. That's the cool thing about art is we get to interpret it our way. The creator can have a story, obviously, but the consumer can also create a story. I don't get it why that song was useful to them, but it doesn't matter. It's not about me. But yeah, those kinds of experiences keep you going. Was it the eight minute long song on your first album, Better Than Happiness? Was that the song? I wish. You were the secret down the street. God picked me up into my feet. Now I can say that I'm pleased to meet you, girl. That is one of my favorite songs. And the funny, not funny, but annoying story behind it is that I actually recorded it with the full band, guitars, drums, everything. And I prepaid to record the album. I lived on cookout, slept on the couch at the studio. Everybody else who was sleeping in the studio, I buy them lunch to record the bass part or buy them lunch to help me with the drum part. And ultimately, the producers just got burned out. And so they weren't really motivated to finish editing. And so I recorded it actually in 2008 and it didn't come out for six months and I couldn't really get revisions in back and forth. And there are parts where my lyrics don't make any sense because they were supposed to be tied to like a drum hit or a snare or whatever. So it's kind of funny, but the ending of that song was the most raw emotion I've ever expressed ever. Wow, Ryan, you have had a lot of events happen in your life. Amazing. So speaking of events happening in your life, how many bands have you been a part of? Can you just give me like an overall timeline? Just quick and dirty. Started off playing the recorder or first chair unless you misbehaved. And that was the only reason you were demoted, which I think is a sign of great talent. Started recording an album, joined a screamo band, 
moved to New York, tell me the bands, the times you were solo, the places you lived. Can you just walk me through starting at eight, all of it? So I get the recorder age nine or so. And a couple of years later, I start middle school, sixth grade. And on the first day, we go around to all of the they were called specials, sort of like the arts or the extracurriculars. Do you want to choose orchestra? Do you want to choose acting? Whatever, as your one extra class a day. And we went on a walk around the orchestra room. And I remember we walked around the perimeter of the room because they had all of the school cellos and the instruments and all of the different tooling. You could check it out. Of course, the center of the room is set up as an orchestral arrangement. And we go maybe three walls around and the two teachers are there and they're greeting and saying hello. And one of the teachers, the main one, Dr. Scruggs, she was Miss Scruggs at the time, not yet a doctor. She grabs my hands and says, what's your name? And I said, Raya. She said, you have just such beautiful hands. You must play in my orchestra. And that was what got me interested in orchestra. To be honest, I didn't necessarily want to play violin. But again, when you're a kid, you're not very secure. You don't have any confidence because you don't have any accomplishments. You haven't achieved anything. You are the product of how much your parents give you affirmations or your coach or whatever it is that you do. And for a lot of us, it takes many years to sort of have intrinsic motivation. So this authority figure to me, this 10 or 11 year old saying like, you have great hands, come and play in my orchestra, like as if I was needed, was a really cool feeling. So I said, okay. So my parents rent me a violin. They're very skeptical, thinking I'm going to quit this. I don't quit. We then buy a violin a few months later and I just loved orchestra and I would come in early in the mornings and I started to realize like I have a good ear and I had like, I don't have perfect pitch, but I had like a natural sense of what the A sounds like and I would just tune 30 instruments and then go to my classes. And I was always a troublemaker, but I had a great relationship with this teacher. Well, she became my Mr. Feeney and she went from the middle school to the high school. So she was my teacher for seven years. She later got a PhD. She's absolutely fantastic. So was the other teacher, Miss Inlow. When I was 13, two years into playing violin, I wanted to get a guitar. And my parents, again, said, no, just stick with the violin. We're skeptical. We don't think you're going to do it. So we made a deal that I could get it for my birthday if I paid half, which meant $75 because I got a $150 Ibanez guitar starter kit. came with a soft felt case. It came with sheet music. It came with a couple picks. It took about 25 weeks, six months to save up my half. So I get a guitar for my 13th birthday, and it was impossible. I got it back home. I was stoked. I'm going to learn to play guitar. I'm going to attract girls. I had the typical motivations of a young teenage boy for learning this new instrument, rock star, whatever. And it was impossible. And I went through that. That's the learning curve of guitar. That's where most people quit. But I thought, well, I paid $75. I could have been buying Pokemon cards. And I mean that. I used to play a lot of Pokemon cards. So I just kept at it. And over that next year or two, I spent at least a thousand hours playing guitar. I upgraded from listening to Bop to trying to learn the songs that I was listening to when my parents left the house. I was not willing to sing in front of anybody. But when they would go out to eat on Friday nights, that's when I would bust out Dashboard Confessional and emo music. And I would look up the guitar chords and try to figure out their songs. You remind me of a formula. Around. 
like it a lot more than you think. If the sun would come out and sing with me. By the time I got to high school, I was sometimes, not all the time, sometimes that kid, the annoying kid, he would bring his guitar and at 6.45 a.m. before class, strum in the hallway and play songs, make a ruckus and get in trouble from the chemistry teacher. So you're a high school's bard? <laughs> high school. Yeah, I'm not super welcome back there, but I've broken in a few times in my early 20s to say hello to that orchestra teacher. Yeah, my high school was a cool experience for getting into music because there were a lot of musicians there. Our orchestra was absolutely fantastic. And then I started a screamo band with a few friends. When I was 14, I started our first band. Our first show, we sold out like 100 tickets downtown Atlanta. We sold out all these tickets at a place and it was like a Wednesday night. And the promoter, I think his name was Tim Sweetwood. He was there for years. We went to play our show and we gave him like all the money. He couldn't believe it. That was what got it started. And over the next three years, I was in a rock band to like a screamo band. We started playing lots of shows. And during that period, I also even played in church and I performed at least 300 times. Wow. Sounds like you were quite the prodigy. Absolutely not. I think you should delete that statement. I was the kid who was willing to put in the time to compensate for lack of talent. And that also taught me a lot about what does talent mean. That's so interesting. You know, listening to your music and how talented you are now, I assumed, well, okay. So you were eight years old. You blew through the recorder playbook, music book in one day. That feels a little bit more like talent than you would think. I mean, it's not like everyone was doing that. It's not like everyone was successful at it. There are many people who put in the same amount of work that you do into music and are just not as good as you are. Give me a percentage. How much do you think of your music now is innate talent versus hard work? It's 50% talent, 50% hard work. Can you break it down for me like that? Maybe 30% innate. And I would even say that that innateness, and I almost wonder if this could be true of most people who are musicians, there's always some root talent. And so I think the innate talent of the musician starts really with just being rhythmic when the rhythm gets that x-ray treatment. You go, oh, this isn't that hard. It's like with web apps and understanding HTTP. I think with music, once you get four over four, <laughs> once you get down those kinds of things, instruments feel like programming. It's like, yeah, I don't play the trumpet, but if you gave me a trumpet in a few days, of course I'd figure out how to play. But I've also witnessed people, to better answer your question, I've witnessed people like even my dad who can make an awesome beat on the table with his thumbs and knuckles and he can sing a little bit. Sorry, dad, if you're listening to this. I got him a drum kit years ago. He then took some lessons and eventually he gave up and said, it's not for me. Now I have his drum kit. That's my drum kit. He, I'll say the word failed, just textbook, that's what happened, right? He lacks willingness to humble himself and be wrong over and over again. This musical talent thing, I think, is a minority stake in any musician's journey because to become good at it, you also have to just do it again, do it again, do it again, like whiplash, right? You have to do that to yourself. You have to give your own whiplash treatment. No one else is going to work that out for you. right now i just got a lot of say got some facts right now i think that makes sense you know i would say i'm a very good writer right it's a skill i've always had 
I was also addicted to reading as a child, just in the same way you were addicted to listening to music. I think these innate dispositions we have towards doing something make us more efficient and effective at building these skills, right? I can tell you I do not have any rhythmic bone. If I were to sing right now, you would be like, oh, Paige, you're like Emperor Nero. This is hurting my ears. Please stop. Bro. City's burning. Stop playing your violin. Not very talented at it. But, you know, I, I love music and I have friends who are musicians and I've watched them go in and out of bands and it's very interesting to see how the musician, who I would say generally is an individual, interacts with other musicians. Do you want to tell me about your experience with bands and with being in bands and with leaving bands and, you know, being an independent and strong-minded person? What's your experience been like? Playing in bands, I was typically the quote-unquote leader just because I was the singer. And the singer, especially if you play an instrument, I play the guitar and sing. You're probably writing the lyrics, which then means you're writing the music because you want the music to complement whatever it is you're trying to say or the emotion you're trying to get across. And so in each of the bands, I was the front man you have all the stuff that has nothing to do with music, like make sure everybody's available to practice, make sure people show up, make sure people know when and where the concert is. It's stressful and playing in bands, I'm able and willing to take endeavors very seriously. I get missions, I assign myself missions and I accomplish my missions or that's my mindset. Playing in bands, you meet a lot of people who have totally different motivations. They want to get laid. They want to look cool. They are playing a status game. They want to have an excuse to smoke pot all the time. That wasn't interesting to me. And so I got myself in bands where it's like, okay, you know, we should get merch, right? Let's have a merch table that's going to help pay us maybe more money than the venue is going to give us, a few hundred bucks, help pay for gas. I also had the truck that we put everything in. So I was always the driver. I always had to pay the gas. It's like, let's get shirts. Let's make CDs. Okay, well, you want to print 100 shirts to pay whatever, 800 bucks up front to buy your 100 shirts. Let's buy 1,000 discs so that we can try to sell 50 at each of our next 20 shows. Well, they're not taking it seriously. So once you get in a band and you start to have success, you have people memorize your lyrics, come to your shows, stand in the front row and scream at you to your face. and it gives you the greatest feeling in the world. Once that happens, you realize that this is more than something I do an hour to a week. This is a business, for better or worse. I could sell tickets, CDs, and shirts. That's it. But you get involved with people who can play guitar but don't care about business. And so that was really stressful for me. I think in a lot of bands, you have one person like that, and the rest are along for the ride. The greatest groups are where they are all the leader in some way. And it's just really rare, particularly with bands, because you are geo-bound, right? And so what's the probability? that four incredibly motivated and hopefully talented people with similar interests, personality fit, and so on, and same taste in music, same taste in art, that's like impossible already. How do you find those people when you're 16? It's like, just do it yourself. The odds are stacked against you already in terms of the industry and the system and whatever. Right, and Fleetwood Mac and the Beatles and many other great bands I love so dearly and would love if you could record covers of. They all hate each other. I mean, I think most of my favorite bands, bands I truly love, they went through seven or eight iterations. I am a huge Fleetwood Mac fan, and even I couldn't tell you how many people have been in that band at the times they've been in it, right? So your suggestion to someone starting out in music is to not even bother with a band. 
just record music by yourself. That's right. You're going to be forced to figure out all of the stuff that you've been trying to delegate to people. So it's like you're starting out. I'm not saying that you should get your own recording studio. I love, for example, working with a producer or engineer. They add that extra 10, 20% to the creative process. I'm not saying to be a one-man shop with every aspect of the creation process. But when you try to get in a band with like a pothead because he has a bass guitar and plays bass better than you might, that's not a good enough reason to partner up. Dear Ryan, did that happen to you? Yeah, am I sounding too like I'm telling the true story? Yeah, everything I'm saying might be totally true. Okay. How many bands did you try to make it work with? Bands? Just three. Two or three. I would say more so than bands. I tried to make it work with three different producers. And that's where things could have gone really, really well for me, but they went nowhere. And I'll take all responsibility for those high level I've been called by Sony to come perform. I've been flown out to different places to sit in front of executives. I've gotten the ring. I missed the call and screwed things up. I've sat with some big names in the industry who said, can we collab or do this or do this with my other artist? And then I said something really stupid. I've, I've made all of the fumbles when I was that 18, 19, 20-year-old trying to get into the industry. I screwed it all up every single time. Even as recently as a few months ago, I got connected to a band that I absolutely loved in the early 2000s. They were really big and that lead singer is producing and he started listening to my music and he liked it and he wanted to record some songs and he made a demo of one of my new songs for free and sent me the audio track so that I could record or, you know, riff on it, treat it as a scratch track to perfect my lyrics and then go finish it up. And I ghosted them. And this was like six months ago. So I've just screwed up a million times. I don't deserve any accomplishments in the music industry, but it's been something that I've kept my eye on and I'm generally aware of how it works. There are people today who are out there and they're famous and everyone listening to this has heard their music. They used to borrow my guitar and meetings and make up lies. And I've watched them steal music from the recording studio that we were both working out of. So I've witnessed some of these things happen right in front of my eyes firsthand, but you know, no hard feelings, whatever. It's all good. Not on the podcast, but you're going to tell me who I should not listen to when we have finished. Thank you. Don't worry. Just putting it here. I'm going to know and you guys won't. Love it. I'm just thinking about who could potentially be someone who would steal music from Ryan Culp. Wouldn't want to be that person. I guess maybe if they're famous. Okay. So his name is... It was... Yeah. Stole music from you. I, I can't believe that. Wow. Stole music from Ryan Colt. Yeah, well, good times. But, you know, I wouldn't change this stuff. I think I'm happy where I am now. And I think entertainment in general is just a dirty place. That's not who I want to be. I don't want to be surrounded by those people. So can you tell me about some of the fumbles you made and how other musicians might avoid them? If I had to reduce it to one word, I would say ego. To start or disclaim, I was never some hotshot acting kid thinking that I'm the boss at anything. However, I am an opinionated person. And so one thing I learned is that it's better to keep your mouth shut around industry veterans because they want you to just be agreeable and go along for the ride. Because in their opinion, they're coming in the room and giving you your big break and they want to be appreciated and praised. If they say, hey, Ryan, can you come out to LA next week and work for me on this artist? And you say, yeah, but you don't have to check my calendar and I have school. They're instantly turned off. It's like hard off. 
they want you to, in my opinion, from my experiences, they want you to basically, not going to say get on your knees, but to drop everything. You don't get to push things around. You don't get to make them second priority on your schedule, classwork. That stuff is an excuse. Uh, if they said, Ryan, what do you think of this new song? Do you want to work on it together? You say, sounds great. Let's see you in the studio. You don't say, it's pretty good, but I would change this word in the second chorus. Absolutely no regrets. These words are clever cause are not from me, but from my heart. And that's step one to showing you my love. And if this song won't do it, then I guess I'll never try again. That's step two, separating me from you. There's a thousand miles curvy roads, but that won't stop me. Planes ain't no, one oh, no, no. In a million places you could go away to. Well, I don't know what to say, cause it's all about you. You say no regrets, but if you could go back, would you do everything the same way you did, or would you have been a little bit more agreeable? I wouldn't do anything differently with these industry people, for sure, because those are not my people. When I was 18, I didn't know what that phrase, my people, meant, but now I have a very clear image of who are my people. What I would have done differently is been more aggressive with my independent stuff. I would have made a hundred more YouTube videos. I would have bought a real camera. I would have done a better job at saying, you know what, instead of buying Panda Express at the mall with my then $5 a week allowance in high school, I would have bought infrastructure. I would have bought gear. All of that might be the same in this parallel universe, but I would have produced content, which would have driven a lot more eyeballs, whether it was with performances or shows or people I could collaborate with. My name's Ryan. I'm going to play a song by Beyonce called Irreplaceable. I don't think I would do anything different on the professional industry side, but yeah, it's, it's a bummer when I look at my videos from 2006 that now have hundreds of thousands of views. It just seemed like this niche internet thing. But I, you know, knowing what I know back then, I would have been one of these like YouTubers. That's kind of how Justin Bieber, like, kind of, you know, he's like this 11-year-old kid playing a guitar that's as wide as he is tall. And obviously, he's one-of-a-kind talent. I'm not saying the formula is making a YouTube video in 2006, but those are the kind of things I would have done. Take what I was doing well a little bit more seriously. You say you're just better than average, but I have to say, I really don't agree with you. There is a reason why I wanted you to record that song for my podcast and why I listened to your album 12 or 13 times in a row today. You are truly talented. And I'm not just saying that just because we're recording my podcast and I like you as a person. I mean that honestly. Have you considered the fact that maybe you just said no to your big break? I feel like you were offered at some point down the line by one of these industry executives, 
Your Big Break, which, by the way, is how these YouTube stars got really famous. They were given the same Big Break opportunity. They didn't get so famous just through YouTube. Well, first, it would be unfair to say that I said no. I didn't knowingly say no. And if I did... Even now, I was like, if you could go back, you're like, no, I wouldn't have done anything differently with those shady industry executives. I would have just recorded more YouTube videos. I don't think that is how any of that works. And I don't know much about the music industry, but I think the recording executives, I think that was probably your big break. Don't you ever for one second you irreplaceable. I don't want to be surrounded by those people. There's obviously bad people in every industry, but I've found a slightly more wholesome bunch where I am now work-wise and even where I am now literally living in a town with ranch guys and shop at Walmart. And now I shop at Walmart and I have a ranch, so I wouldn't trade that. I'm gonna buy me a ranch with some acres between us. Maybe I'm able to dance. It will never be the same, but I hear that's life. That's why the song will be the last one I write. Maybe if I had made more bad decisions or I said no to even more opportunities after the music stuff, it would be easy to say, well, sure, I'd trade all of that and go back in time for the music thing. But, you know, there's two parallel universes my life is composed of and that all of our lives are composed of the path we took and the path we didn't. So far, if I try to punch in a score, the path I took, I think, scores higher than the one I didn't, even if the one I didn't take is something that is supposed to be great. I just think you were born in the wrong time period. I think if you you were alive and in music at the same time as my favorite artist, Joni Mitchell, or even Randy Newman, that was when you were in your musical prime, I feel like I'd be listening to your songs on the radio. Well, it's very nice of you to say, but no, I'm happy. I make music for fun now and still able to make a bit of an impact on other people's lives. And that's enough. And, you know, I do think there's a chance, not like a chance that I'm chasing, admittedly. It's not a chance I'm pursuing, but there is a little like brain massage or maybe it's a cope. I don't know. In the back of my head saying, you know, if I really wanted to, I could go full time on this and maybe make some bigger splashes than I made in the past. And I was able to do a little bit of that in Korea last few years and make a small splash. I do want to ask you about your experience in Korea making music. The last thing I'll ask about this, and then I'll drop the subject entirely. On some level, do you feel like there's some mental block of I'm not good enough, I don't deserve to be here, and maybe that's why you quite literally shot yourself in the foot at many opportunities of being famous and really producing music at the level I think your talent would warrant? I mean, nothing is guaranteed, right? Many people who I think are talented musicians and who really work and have been given their big breaks, their music just never takes off. Some people get really famous and then their career kind of tapers off. Like Michelle Branch, incredibly talented musician, put out a great album. Nothing has really reached the same heights. Same with Sarah Bareilles. I digress. Do you feel like you're self-sabotaging? Yes. But just by way of saying it right now, resounding yes. It's so, and I think there's something to that, that 
puts it in a separate, don't feel sorry for me type of track, which is, and I mentioned this earlier, I alluded to this earlier, find out who are my tribe and what am I willing to do to attract new people into that tribe or to make myself look attractive to new tribes, tribes that I discover. I'm going to discover tribe tomorrow. I'm going to a a small little 40-person conference and I may or may not vibe with this group and I'm not going to try to vibe with this group. With the music stuff, with industry opportunities that I screwed up, I've recognized, I've observed over the years in between the lines of all of those specific instances that I have never fit into musician mold. I do not look or act like a musician. I don't even talk about being a musician. Today, right now, I've said the word music and musician and instrument more times than probably this whole year. I will get to know someone easily without saying the words, I play guitar. It's not something I bring up. And I don't want to try to jam with people. I don't want to try to show them that I can play something. The musician thing is kind of like skateboarding. So a skateboard is wood and wheels and ball bearings. But skateboarding is a lot more than balancing. Skateboarding is an entire attitude. It's a lifestyle. When you are a skateboarder, you are anti-authoritarian. You likely act a certain way. There's a high chance you smoke. You wear a certain class of brands. You wear a certain kind of shoes. You sag your pants a certain way. You spend your Saturday mornings a certain way. Your friends do or don't have certain types of degrees or jobs. Some hobbies are like that. They have an aura around them that's not always good. But people who are really good at skateboarding, that's what they do. Run away from the cops, right? Go places they're not allowed to go after hours, jump over fences. People who skateboard are people who jump over fences. That's fine if that's what you want to do. With music, there's a similar set of traits. A nihilistic view of the world, inviting drama into your life versus simplicity, obviously sucking up to people who are in the industry who control what you're allowed to say in your songs and what you're allowed to do in the press. And I don't care on purpose because my people are not music industry, Silicon investors or founders. They're my people. I'm still finding my people, but you know, I think my people are probably like retired cops and farmers. And that's why I moved to a small town. But yeah, I definitely sabotage some of the music stuff because it's just not worth changing who I am, even though I think it's pretty easy to say, well, if I did this differently, this opportunity would have happened. If I didn't make a joke on Twitter to this one person, then they could have become my co-founder or investor. Every time I'm aware, I still don't care. And that's how I want to die. Twitter remind me. I wish I could remember his name. I saw his thing at South By. He was very anti-classist, very famous. I watched his movie and my brain just feels totally wiped of it. He was a very successful producer and designer and he was all of this modeling and he was so great, but he was like you. He was very anti-classist. He was not elitist. He did not care. He wore shorts and shirts. Did you have a fantasy of being that person in the music industry? The guy who just doesn't care and wears whatever he wants and says whatever he wants, but is so talented that it just doesn't matter. I've thought about this because I think we've all observed, as you just mentioned, we've all observed someone who is that character. I've gone to tech conferences where one guy was walking around in a furry suit all day, but he was someone that everybody wanted to go talk to because I guess he built an awesome tech company. I don't know, the Rick Rubens of the world, (laughs) that huge interview he did where he's like, I don't know how to play any instruments, right? But people seek him. I think that is its own type of status game, trying to say, well, I'm going to break in. I'm going to be a Hollywood actor. And I'm going to be the one actor who doesn't audition 
and always says F you to the director and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to be like the Ari Gold of whatever. And I think that's its own level of ego. I think that's an even higher level of ego. And people who play that game are kidding themselves that they're doing it their own way. No, like that is a way. That is a prescribed way to break into an industry is to very intentionally present yourself as the outsider. Like look at our last president, right? It's like, I'm an outsider, therefore I should be the president. That's what makes this interesting. Don't you guys get it? So I've actively avoided that as well. My thought was actually more from a naive, ignorant perspective versus a master strategy, which was I got into playing music. I started writing songs. I thought they were okay. People listen to them, learn some words, say it made an impact. And I thought that that's all there is to it. And that's where I was at, which was like, shouldn't music be about the music? Take you as a sinner when you look like a saint Till you grew long beard and made the whole world stop to think And even though I'm not perfect I can tell by the look in your small brown beady eyes That if you're gonna be a rocker then you can't go without a good, good disguise Gibberish and blabbering about all the things that I'll do When truth be told all I want is to be next to you Taking me away Never to be found or seen or heard again by anybody Stay with me Don't be trying to say Tell me that you're never coming back again That's so cliche That's so cliche So please stay All the lines from the movies on the screen The cutest thing my ears have ever seen Cause you're a queen Just kidding <laughs> And I know I'm not the first person, I'm not the 10 millionth person to say that sentence, but that's where I was and am still at. Once I realized that music is mostly not about the music, hard off. And that's why I'm not further into any area where you are no longer doing the thing that the area is about. So in tech, I was willing to learn how to code. So I did, because that's half of technology. Then the other half is you have to sell it. So I was learning how to do that. I intentionally limit myself. I put governor on my ability to iterate, adapt to environments. That does clude me from a lot of opportunities and I'm okay with it. And I think I have enough proof to show for anyone who's interested in going that route that you'll still survive. You can still be comfortable doing things your own way. But to your point, not the doing things your way by trying to be the one guy in your space that just wears the flip-flops to the business meetings. That's its own level of ego, but truly being your authentic self, that's what I think has always come naturally to me. And once it's not about the music, I'm not interested. Yeah. For the record, I don't feel sorry for you. I would say the emotion I am experiencing right now it's not quite anger because you are a grown adult and you're very set in this mindset. I think it's a bit of frustration. It's like, Ryan, if you could just one time relax your standards a little bit and suck up to one executive, do one iota of being a chameleon, of fitting into a specific culture, I think you could go so far. I mean, having the level of talent you do and the number of industries you have talent in, you're not a jack of all trades. You are really good at all of these things. 
you're really not willing to compromise on the being your full authentic self and always. Truly, it's never crossed your mind. What has kept you so steadfast in it? Because I know a lot of people, you know, in my life, I've talked to so many people and I can tell you right now, a lot of them would kill to be in your shoes with your level of talent and have the number of opportunities that you have been given. Well, to that last bit, I should have said this much earlier in this discussion, but I'm very, very lucky and very, very grateful to have experienced even the failures that I've experienced, to have those close calls, to have heard some of these kind words spoken to me. So, you know, I don't take any of that for granted, but I would add that for the scenario you just mentioned, okay, what if you could just suck up that one time? You know, I can simulate that in my head and I have simulated that. What if I just tweeted this way instead of that way? What if I just literally didn't send that tweet and then didn't send that next one and didn't send that next one? What if I wrote my emails this way? I've simulated a lot of these outcomes. And to be honest, I get some meaningful benefit from imagining how things could go differently without actually having to change myself. It's like I've heard that some people who are trying to diet, they'll watch the Food Channel and try to get some iota of benefit from watching someone else eat. I don't really understand that. That doesn't work for me. But simulating parallel outcomes or parallel realities to my life, I think that does work for me. I can imagine that, yes, if I didn't say that one thing that one time in 2010 to that one producer, my whole life could be different and I could be performing on stages. Like I can simulate that and I can smile and appreciate what that would be like. And then I can zap back to reality. And it's funny what you're saying. You said the word frustrated. I think that's a good word to describe it. I'm not frustrated. I'm at peace with this. But other friends, especially some close friends have known me for many years, they will hound me about this stuff. Ryan, why did you do that? If you just did this, this would happen. It's like, yeah, I get pleasure from being me. And maybe a lot of people don't get pleasure from being themselves. And I'm not accusing you of this, by the way. I'm not subtweeting you in front of your face right now. But <laughs> maybe, seriously, maybe some people it's like, their default state is, how do I fit in in order to get ahead? My default state is, how far can I go just being me? If every end period, whether that's every one year or six months, I do sense that I got ahead somehow, that's tremendous, not pleasure, but I get tremendous value from that. Like, wait, I already know I was just myself. I know I didn't bend over to anybody the last six months, but I think my life's better now than it was this time last year. And so that feedback loop for me has been really rewarding. But when you're just getting started and you don't have the feedback loop, a default state of how can I fit in in order to get ahead makes sense. But if you're willing to experiment, how can I get ahead? How far can I go being myself? I think all it takes is one or two repetitions and you might get hooked to that strategy instead. As this is a voice-only podcast... To say for my listeners, the look of disgust on Ryan's face when he was thinking about what his life would have been like if he'd just been a little bit nicer to the industry executives, I can tell you it's not ever going to happen. He is not ever. <laughs> He's laughing because he knows it's right. Like, Ryan, your face, your eyebrows furrowed. You looked angry. Like, if I saw you sitting like that in traffic, I would avoid your car. This is how serious your face looked. Interesting. Well, I'm going to, you know, as they say in the tech world, put a pin in it. Would love to hear what you think about corporate language. We do not have time for that, but I would just, I would love to know everything about what you think about that. So you produced a K-pop album, a K-pop album, Screamo Music and K-pop. Can you tell me the process of creating this album and just what was that like? 
The Korean album I did was a really fun way to combine my skills, my workflows almost over the years that I built up in my work life. I was able to apply them into this new field challenge of songs in another language that need to be enjoyed by people with somewhat different tastes than I've been used to and while living in a different country. And so, you know, it's funny. Way I got started with the Korean music thing was by signing up for that tool, Rome Research, which I used heavily for a few months and then I abandoned and then I canceled it like two years later. I just wanted to support the creator. So I kept paying for a couple more years. But I started brain mapping ideas and lyrics and elements of Korean culture. I was reading books about Korea at the time and just pointing out like little things that I could inject into songs. And this was before there was any rhyme. There were no chords written yet. There was just like, if I'm an alien going to planet Korea, what could I latch my guitar and my voice onto to make an interesting song? And so one of the things I noticed in Korea was like, there's a phrase in Spanish like, bale, bale, like quickly, right? And it's like, rapido, and it's always said with a little bit of frustration. It's not like a positive connotation phrase. It's like something you might say to a kid or husband or wife or employees if you're a jerk boss. It's got a negative connotation. And in Korean, there's a lot of phrases like that too. And one is, bale. that means like quickly, like hurry up, really. And it's not something you really want to say to be romantic. I thought, well, I want to take this Aliwa, like come quickly and turn it into something that's endearing. And so the first song I did in Korea is called Baliwa, and it's trying to put a total spin and trying to totally reverse the implication of the phrase Baliwa and rewire and reset the neuronic path, right, for a Korean listener. It's like, wait, I've never heard Baliwa spoken or said as a romantic gesture. So it was like an experimentation thing. It's like, how can I put language and etymology and just observing things into music? You know the directions to my crib Get on, come on, get on, take the two to the six We'll put on a movie, yeah, we'll chill Try to make money, we Let's drink Americanos, we'll drink Two times, Never go away that's how it started. But then, you know, I was living there. So I started experiencing things in real life. And I started listening to a lot of Korean music. And I didn't always understand what they said. I was studying the language as quickly as I could to get better at that. And I started walking around Seoul and listening to Korean music and staring at Korean people and thinking, the soundtrack of this country is in my ears right now. And it was this multi-sensory thing because I'm walking on the streets and I'm seeing the people and I'm listening to the music. And it was like, Never felt more connected to like, what should this sound like? And I don't think I necessarily pulled it off with my music. I definitely didn't pull it off, actually. I, I need a few more repetitions to get closer to what is in my head. But, you know, the process was basically a year of one song every two months, one lyric a week, maybe. And I would have the thought, obviously, get it into Korean. Sometimes I would do English. The songs are about 50-50. And then sometimes I'd run the lyric by my tutor and say, like, does this grammar make sense? Back soon, a track soup, and your dingle got go, miss you. Come home, come home. Did away without you, what am I supposed to do? Some book did all alone, all alone. 
할 때면 보고 싶어 너만 있으면 돼 which I've never had to do writing music, like think if the grammar makes sense, or does this sound natural, you know, or can I make this syllable longer than that one? In English or whatever your native language is, that of course comes intuitively. So Korean music for me was like, I had to pull out all of my toolboxes that I never felt had anything to do with creating music, but I had to pull all of them out to try to make something that's okay-ish to put in your ears, particularly if you're a native Korean speaker. So that was a fun process. In Korea, I was really blessed to do a lot of stuff in the entertainment industry there, not due to any particular skills, but just by being in the middle of a supply and demand squeeze. I was American during COVID in Korea, where everyone's watching TV and YouTube. Most of the foreigners had left, gone back to their home countries. Within a few months of living there, I was getting opportunities all the time to go on TV shows and radio and commercials and film and all this stuff. And we are back with All in Context. And this is where we shed light on some cultural idiosyncrasies. And we look at things that might be just considered completely normal and natural here in Korea, but from a different perspective can be considered very strange and sometimes just outright rude, especially when we're talking about manners. Mm, Bananas. (laughs) Bonkers. Manners bonkers, yes. And that was, of course, Ryan Culp, who helps us to do that with All in Context. Good morning, Ryan. Again, zero talent for any of that. I had never trained that. I'd never aspired to do that. But it was a way to try to get my name out there to then maybe get people to listen to my music. And I was able to perform with very, very famous Korean musician on live television. But even in Korea, you know, I didn't follow their rules. They instituted a, a vaccine pass. I'm not willing to show my identity to get into a restaurant. So I made a fake vaccine pass, which could have gotten me kicked out of the country in a $10,000 fine. I don't care. I was ready to pay that fine and I was ready to get kicked out. They said you had to have XYZ boosters to continue going on the radio. I had my own radio show and I wasn't willing to do that. So I lost my radio show. I lost plenty of opportunities being me in Korea, even though in Korea, like being me was kind of easy because half of me was just the simple fact of what I looked like and all of that. But, you know, I experienced enough that I'm more than satisfied with it. And I think I've lived more than one life grateful for all of it. I don't spend any thought on what if I just did that differently. Yeah, Ryan, if I were a young musician listening to this podcast, I would think to myself, wow, sounds like the way to really make it in this world is not to be myself. I think that's perfectly fine. That's a perfectly fine interpretation if you are trying to get into one of these less conventional industries. If you're trying to get into entertainment, yeah, you're not going to get to be yourself all the time. Even people who have made it in the industry seem like they just keep kicking the can down the road and wait, well, once I retire, then I'll suddenly go online and say that one crazy idea I had about this country or these politics or this you know, type of person. And even they get trapped in it forever. So you really have to decide what's worth it to you. For me, I have, like you said, a lot of personal standards. My own moral compass is really specific. Anything that I believe in, I'd like to think that I would die for it or else I don't really believe in it, right? So if I say something is my conviction, saying something is a conviction of yours equals a thing you're willing to die for. So if you're not willing to die for anything, that means you don't have any conviction. That's a gift. And that means that you can blend into different environments, especially grueling environments like the entertainment industry where, again, it's if you're a musician, guess what? It's not all about the music. Music's just a small part of it. So I think a perfectly valid takeaway from this conversation for someone aspiring to do this is really just to become introspective and ask yourself, are you willing to change? How much are you willing to change yourself to make it? If you're willing to make the change, then you have as good a chance as anybody at making it. If you're not willing to change at all, you have about zero chance. 
I have zero chance, but I was able to clock enough smaller wins along the way. And I'm still today able to simulate what it would be like. And that's enough for me, but I can't speak for anyone else and say that that's going to be enough for you. So yeah, the takeaway is definitely not to do what I did the way I did it. Maybe the takeaway, if you want to succeed, is to almost treat my story as the playbook of what not to do. But even that, that I've helped you, which feels good. Word. I can't believe you are a K-pop star. That is insane. K-pop star. Gotta ask. So you're married to a Korean woman. Was getting involved in Korean music a way to impress her? Well, if you go back to why a lot of people learn to play guitar, in my opinion, back when I was a 13-year-old and took your kid, I thought I want to impress girls and I'll attract girls. But I think once you get into a skill deeper, you have to have a way bigger why than that. Also, it's just impractical to say you're going to learn to play guitar to get girls because it's like, well, once you get a girl... Now you'd have to stop playing guitar if that was your only motivation. It's like once you find a good woman to be around. No, if you get her by playing guitar, you're going to have to play guitar for the rest of your life or she's going to find someone else who plays guitar. Well, that's a problem too. So it's like going back to the same thing we keep talking about, being yourself and how far can you get just being you. I don't want peripheral skills or devices or my aesthetic to be what attracts a life partner for me. I'm going to sound like a stuck up jerk right now for saying this, but I'll just say it because it's how I perceive the skill of playing and singing guitars. If you can play and sing pretty well and you're single and you're not like, you know, 400 pounds and whatever, everything's reasonably normal with your shape. The guitar is a secret weapon, especially if you have a good job and you're in your 20s, 30s. The guitar is freaking, I don't even know, crypt, kryptonite. The key to my girl's heart is G major Cause it's all I can sing And I hope this song will do I'll say before a diamond ring You heard that right, I'm so not much to do Just what I'm told She asked me how I'm sure I said that I just go yo, 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 yo. I intentionally avoided trying to be the guy That takes his guitar to the party To impress girls there and whatever Because I think that's not how you meet the right person Make a living, make a kid, and write a words for the money, not the honey. This is how I really feel about it. Gotta make a sacrifice, take a check at the studio, Atlanta, and a lot of compared about it. Ultimately, as you develop your skills, you have to have a more innate, intrinsic reason to keep developing them, or they will atrophy because you will very quickly achieve your extrinsic goal if that is the only reason you're into it. And then once you achieve it, you will be empty. And I know everybody says this, and everybody has to experience it before they believe it. But yeah, that's uh, a little bit about how we connected without getting too specific. You know, a guy wrote me a song once. Lyrics went, you're so short. You're so short. Why are you so short? How could they ever make a person so short? I will play it for you when our podcast is over. It's real. He's very talented, but I never spoke to him again. Did not work in his favor. I were tall. That's not a bit. I really do. I feel like if I were tall, whatever, I digress. Would you consider music your greatest skill? What do you think about that? I would agree. I think music is my greatest or maybe only talent, but it is not what 
gives me the life I have. And so it's worth tempering, tampering your, I was thinking of tamper because of like making an espresso, tempering. I knew you would know. I like this live spell autocorrect. So it's worth tempering your expectations of how your life's going to go or how it ought to go based on what your talents are. And I think it's useful to find some peace and be able to say, you know, and this is me saying this, music is my passion. Music is maybe my sole innate ability. Obviously, I've worked hard on it, but it doesn't pay any of my bills. It gives me joy in measurable ways. Sometimes I just grab the guitar off the wall and strum for a couple minutes and it's like an escape from reality and then I go back to work. But I'm at peace that music is, depending on how you measure it, almost a microscopic part of my life. There's an interesting aspect to actually becoming good at stuff that you don't care about just to see what you're capable of. Yeah, I never took a guitar lesson. Here we are, bump your head to the short B section. Higher pitch, raise the energy. That's my confession. Class is missed. This concludes our music theory lesson. When somebody asks you, how do you do it? Achieve all the goals in your head. Ignore the message. Know what to say. Thanks for that. That was very interesting. So it sounds like you were a bit of a breakout star when you lived in Korea. You say you got lucky. I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Honestly, it sounds like if the whole pandemic had not happened, we might not even be having this conversation because you'd be some K-pop star. You'd be like on a stage with tons of screaming fans because K-pop fans. Yeah. My question is, what strategies did you employ and what would you recommend someone do if they want to get involved in a music scene in a new country in a language that's foreign to them? My high level answer to that is very simple. Assimilate with the culture. When I went to Korea, that's what I did. I have a lot of Western values. I am an individualistic person, right? They're more collectivist. Like there's sort of a duality in some high level values. But when you go to a place like Korea, some of these rules are stupid, but you just, you fit in that. There are speech patterns in Korea and ways that you end your statements and words and sentences when you're talking to someone older than you or when you're talking to a boss or someone more authoritative than you. You can choose to ignore that but you're not going to go very far. So you have to assimilate with the culture. So the ways where I could fit in with their expectations without changing me, it started with just an openness to assimilating to what their expectations are. Even practically speaking, in Korean music, if you listen to a lot of the modern stuff, whether it's K-pop or the more indie stuff, there's not a lot of vibrato. There's R&B and stuff, but they literally just sing in a flat, vibrato-less way. I think that a lot of singers have a natural vibrato, and I also think that the producers flatten it out with auto-tune. That's just one of their expectations. They're not huge on soulful voices. So you want to make good Korean music, or in the eyes of a Korean listener, you should probably drop all the, you know, drop all that vocal control, even if you are capable of it. So I was willing to do those kinds of things, but those are cosmetic tweaks, right? These are the things that I observed would be useful to assimilating with the Korean culture's expectations of a foreigner coming in and wanting to participate in their economy, wanting to participate in their competitive entertainment industry. I was willing to make those concessions. I don't think I ever changed who I was. I never held my tongue. I never didn't say things that I believed. I did say things on TV and radio that were cut out later. But I'm okay with that because that was their decision. I still got to be me and then they got to be them. And that was a good balance for me. 
But that would be the first answer to the question is assimilate. And you know the other ways you have to do that, you're going to have to study their language. You're going to have to learn their words. You're going to have to learn their slangs. You're going to have to sit in your room alone for hundreds and hundreds of hours in pain so that one day you get the return of being accepted. Very interesting, Ryan. Gotta say, I suspect the reason you made it so far in Korea because it's not your native tongue. I know what you mean by that. Yeah, I was incapable of mouthing off the way I would have if the language came naturally to me. Yeah, I probably sounded like a good little boy in Korea, even though my mind might have been thinking 10 reactions to someone I was in a room with. Maybe I only responded essentially with yes, ma'am, yes, sir. That's possible, sure. I think the secret is just to go to a country where you don't speak the language at all and just sing and just, you know, you're very talented. Just go to a country where, I guess, music is very big. It'd be a good fit for the, yeah, that is what I think you should do, Ryan. Yeah, I have proof that it works. I co-starred on a cooking show for 15, 16 episodes and the most famous chef in Korea. And he would scream at me every episode about how to cook like rice or whatever we were making. And I would just nod my head and smile. And then they would put these clueless speech bubbles over my face in post before they aired the episode. And we were getting five, six million viewers a, a week on our show. And, you know, I looked like a total idiot. So I was the mascot as this like dumb foreigner. But man, did I smile? Did I grin? And did I take it on the chin? And was I, you know, cooperative? Yes, 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 and yes. And I still got to be me. I think, honestly, if you are so fixed on wanting to become famous or get into entertainment, go somewhere like Korea. There's 50 million people. They don't have the same type of politics. They're infatuated with foreigners who are interested in them. So there's this mutual thing. The government supports it. There's visa programs. Every single detail. It's affordable even to live in the heart of Seoul. It's safe. You can figure it out and get your start there. But ultimately, I've observed a lot of Westerners doing well in Korea with the same or less skill than I had. It was getting to their head. They became very egotistical. Like if they're a top model in Korea, they thought like I'm a top model, but that's not the same. Korea is an opportunity. It's a little bit of a bubble. They're obviously globally recognized, but opportunity on the ground in the zip code is really unique and it doesn't necessarily transfer outside. And I observed people letting get to their head and I didn't want that to happen to me. So that was one of the reasons that I left. That doesn't surprise me. Look, I'm okay with attention, or I'd happily say I like attention. I welcome attention. I enjoy performing. I enjoy just eight people listening to me at a party. Like All of that's well and good, but I also have a standard for attention, and it ought to be earned. It ought to be deserved. It ought to be because of something that I've created, not because of some innate characteristic I had nothing to do with, like my race or my gender or my nationality the tone of my voice, my smile. Those are silly, superficial reasons that someone should give you attention. And there's a lot of countries where a Westerner, and that's another example how lucky we are if, if you're a Westerner, we can go there and they roll out the red carpet for you if you're willing to learn how to say a few of their words, all of that. And that's neat. And I think a lot of people really lean into that, but they don't get it that it's sort of like the joke is on you, like you're the fish, the fishbowl. And they're laughing at you at your existence. Like, look at this dumb foreigner who came and he's like, get to watch him eat kimchi and watch him wave a hand in front of his mouth because the soup is spicy. And that's kind of the thing that happened. I don't want to get too dark, but that's the direction that this starts to go. You make a caricature of yourself and some people never get it that that's what's happening. It's like they're putting you on a stage with a unicycle and five jumps balls and they know you're not going to be able to do it all, but it's fun to watch you try. There's a little bit of that going on. And I saw it. I think I saw it for 
what it is. I think that's a pretty fair characterization, at least in 80% of the cases of foreigners in foreign media. And it's not for me. You know, I want people to listen to me, watch me, et cetera, because I have a good idea, because I have something to say, not because I'm four inches taller and white. They really do roll out the red carpet for Westerners. Actually, I had an experience at South By this year where I was standing in line. This woman saw me. She's not from Korea. She's from Japan. She owns one of the largest electronics firms there. And she's like, oh, you're so pretty. You're very white. I like your eyes. Let's hang out. No, I'm not kidding. Let's hang out. So hung out with her for South By. She sent me a ton of free stuff. I don't think she was laughing at me. I think she just liked the fact that I was Western and I had the big anime eyes. Yeah, I, by the way, if you if you want one, I have them at home. I have these little nail chips. You put them on your nails like a QR reader. I looked online, they're $1 chips. You should send them to me because I'm from the West. It sounds like your experience was really turning in to you being someone for them to laugh at, which, you know, from what we have talked about, if someone... I can't ever... I can see that even less than you sucking up to Hollywood executives, letting people, like, laugh at you or make fun of you. I feel like again, your face right now. What was your, I gotta leave, this is not for me point? What was the, this is no longer a joke I'm enjoying moment for you? There were many small incidents that I think I just had to sit back and reflect and realize I gotta go. I mean, one of the main ones was just that I would never fully fit into a collectivist society. I don't want to get political, but there were just a lot of homogenous ways of and ways of doing things in Korea that I fully appreciate their utility in war times where you need to rebuild your nation and everyone can come together and feel unity. You know, when Korea was going broke, they asked citizens to send in their necklaces and then they melted, they smelted down all of the gold to pay off debts. Like, and Korea did it. So that's like amazing, right? When the Korean War ended and they had to build roads because it was dirt or destroyed, they all came together and they made it happen. It came so far in the last 70 years. So Korea has done a lot of amazing things with the collectivist approach, but practically speaking, to maintain the Confucianist collectivist approach, it's like there's zero visuality. So you have someone like me, based on everything we've just spent the last hour and a half talking about, I'm not willing to bend over an inch. And I go to a place where that is the culture. I could have lasted longer than I did and I would have enjoyed it. And I think next spring, next year, I will go back for a couple months, do another TV show, but I'm not going to kid myself that that's where I'm meant to be. I'm probably meant to be in a small town injuring myself on the tractor. Yeah, the price of celebrity or collectivism, Ryan Culp is not willing to pay it. So I have one final question for you and then just a fun little game closer. I want to know, how important do you think music is to our world? What role do you think it serves for humans? And what do you think would happen if we didn't have access to it? And Ryan, who would you be if you didn't have access to it? It's a very dramatic question. 
I think it was a couple of years ago while I was living in Korea, I tweeted something like Ryan's order of art forms in greatest to least importance or value. I was trying to provide an objective measure and I don't care if people agree, obviously. And at spot one or two, I believe I wrote music as one, maybe as two. And then I wrote two, three, four, five, and I put, you know, writing and acting and a few other things. And then it was like dot, 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 67 dance. It's funny you say that. I danced ballet growing up. You know what? I had very weak ankles. Apparently ballet helped strengthen them. There are all these videos of me dancing. I was such a bad dancer because I don't have the rhythm, but ballet for me I still do it, right? I do it at home. I take bar classes. I did it a little bit in high school before I got busy with other extracurriculars. For me, ballet was very valuable because I am not a very rules-oriented person, and I am not a good dancer, and ballet is one of the only physical activities where they will tell you exactly what to do, and if you do it exactly as they say, you are technically good. And I have to say, as someone who cannot follow rules and is not talented in terms of rhythm or dancing, Ballet, godsend. I love it. You should take a class while you're here. It's really fun. Ballet Austin's amazing. Can't believe I can't believe Cook Ballet at the lowest. That's mean. That's that's cyberbullying. Well, first of all, what is ballet on top of? It is a layer on top of music. I've never seen ballet without music in the background. Maybe it exists. Well, I don't know anything about ballet. I also can do things that what's it called? Ballerina? That ballerinas can't. I can do things that you can't, Ryan Cole. Like Stretch my legs. No, I mean like ballerina things. Like I can stand and walk around on my toes. Ballerinas train for years to do this. So when I learned as a young kid that like I can walk on my toes and I've never trained for this and ballerinas are getting bloody feet. It's like this is this weird masochistic thing. And like you said, it's rules. There's an expression to the choreography, but then the person following the choreography. Ballet is an insane skill. 100%. I couldn't do it. I don't do it. It's an insane skill. As an art form, it just doesn't provide as much value as something like music. Music, and obviously I'm partial to music, but even before I could play it, you said that you don't play music. In your words, right, you said something like, don't have a rhythmic bone, but you love music. That's a really interesting paradox almost, where there's billions of people like this in the world that don't play music. Maybe they could, maybe they don't have the ability, I don't know. They haven't tried yet, but there's billions of people in the world who absolutely love music with no idea of how to play it or create it. Name other skills like that. Are there a billion people who are interested in code that have no idea how to code? Like most skills, you have to learn it to appreciate it. Music is one of these things where an alien could hear our music because that's what most people are to music. They're an alien to it. They don't see it for the bars and measures, but they can appreciate it. You know, film is great. Acting is great. Storytelling is great. Guess what? It costs $10 million. Guess what? You need permission. Guess what? You need the theater to be willing to show it. Whereas music, a human can create music. Paraplegic can make music if they have a vocal cord. Or if they don't have a vocal cord, but they have thumbs, they can beat on a desk and make music. I think music is the purest form of art because it has no ingredients other than you. You are the recipe. You are, it is self-contained. And there's something really pure about that. It is unmatched by other art forms that to me are just man-made versions, most of which sit on top of music. Ballet sits on top of music. Even great films, the scary movies in the background as Jack is whacking through door going for Danny. Music 
is underneath that, making it scary, making it intense, feeding it the energy. There's nothing like it. There never will be anything like it. That's why we have national anthems, not national dances, not national films. Music, music, music doesn't even come close. I think, again, back to the power of music, it could still be a similarly important part of my life and of my story, even if I never picked up a guitar. Very interesting. I'm just going to close on saying, I feel like music and dance are heavily interconnected. You know, you say, what was it, Ballet 66? Ballet would be nothing without the field of music. Ballerinas inspire musicians, and I feel like the score for ballet is, you know, they're beautiful. All right, Ryan, let's close out by playing a quick game. I'm going to give you a series of choices between two musical artists, and you're going to tell me who you enjoy more, and then I'm going to tell you who I enjoy more. My taste is better. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? The Beatles, 100%. This is the talk of everyone's life. I actually like the Rolling Stones more. Do you think the Rolling Stones music is better or do you just like it more? And can you appreciate that those could be different answers by the same person? I'm going to give you a series of choices between two musical artists and you're going to tell me who you think is better and it's the Rolling Stones. Okay, I'd say the Beatles and my quick answer why would simply be that the Beatles did not require the listener to look, act, think, live a certain way to enjoy them. The Beatles perfectly fit as the background music, the soundtrack to just about anyone's lives. Rolling Stones, just like skateboarding, comes with an attitude. It comes with the vibe. It comes with a set of shared beliefs about the world, about the problems in the world. It comes with maybe even a shared set of hobbies of what you do in your free time. And to me, that's great if you're looking at this as a marketer product positioning. They found a niche audience. You know, Rolling Stones fans go hard and they pay 10 grand for tickets. I get it. But as a pure expression of who makes better music, it's like, what's the music that works as the soundtrack to anyone's lives, not the music that stoners in the 60s listen to? Get off of my cloud, Ryan. It's so funny you were saying that. I was like, okay, so I don't really think of the Rolling Stones as the soundtrack to my life. And then, hey, hey, get out of my cloud. Well, you were being mean about my favorite band. Joni Mitchell or Paul Simon? Paul Simon. Joni Mitchell. Paul Simon. You're supposed to give me one, Ryan, not repeat Paul Simon. Like a parrot, like a Paul Simon parrot. I thought we were just going to go back and forth with louder volume and then you edit it later so that yours the highest volume. Can be the loudest volume right now. Okay, let's bring this into the 90s, early 2000s, because this is actually a dichotomy I've thought of a lot. Green Day or Blink-182? All right, I actually have a funny story about Green Day. You're going to laugh. It's pretty funny. Thank you so much for all your time, by the way. I promise we're almost done. This is really great. You're a great interviewee. Thank you. So my parents were divorced, and growing up, my mom would always drive me and my little brothers to see my dad in Oklahoma. And we stopped at, I think, a Costco or a Sam's Club, and she's like, so Paige, your birthday's coming up. Uh, I want to get you a present. Why don't you pick out three albums for us to listen to? So I picked out Kelly Clarkson's Breakaway, and we listened to that. And then I picked out, I think actually it was a Michelle Branch album, and we listened to that. And I picked out Green Day because I had heard the song American Idiot, and I really liked it, and we didn't look that it was explicit. And so we listened to the Green Day explicit album, and my mom was like, no, you picked this. We're going to listen to it. So I sat in the car listening <laughs> to all the Green Day songs with her. So I'm going to have to go with Blink-182 just because that's your core memory of shame. That was a hard hour of listening to screaming, swearing music with my two little brothers and my mom. Blink-182. Blink-182. The Beach Boys or the Zombies? 
the Beach Boys for the same reason as Rolling Stones versus Beatles. Although I will say that if all of the Beach Boys music was like Pet Sounds, they would have gone down in history with a little bit more sincerity and they would have been seen more as one of the greatest of all time versus happy, funny movie soundtrack music. Aren't you glad you're so glad? That's one of my favorite songs by them. Fleetwood Mac or Sticks? Obviously Fleetwood Mac. And it is not even a competition, Ryan. I thought you were a musician. I would also say Fleetwood Mac, but I just kind of wanted to see if I could get you to say a guy band. I like guy bands. I love guy bands. Joni Mitchell's not a guy band. Okay. Leonard Cohen or Eric Clapton in terms of songwriting ability, not in terms of actual musical ability. Eric Clapton, better songwriter. Leonard Cohen, better singer. Leonard Cohen. I don't think anyone has ever in the history of the world said Leonard Cohen, better singer. I would go with Leonard Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> better songwriter. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole comparing singers in that way. Bare Naked Ladies or Matchbox 20? Bare Naked Ladies. I'd say Matchbox 20, but I did go see Bare Naked Ladies a few months ago in concert, but it just felt too much of like a nostalgia fest and I wasn't taking them seriously. Matchbox 20, I think, had some real bangers that are timeless. Bare Naked Ladies is like a meme song with the Chinese chicken. I listen to one week, literally once a week. I like it. Song. Okay, wow. Yeah, I'm going to cut that out. That's embarrassing. Real Big Fish or No Doubt? No Doubt. No Doubt. Wow. We, this is the first time we agreed. It wasn't a fair fight. No That's Doubt or Blink-182? Blink-182. What about No Doubt versus Maroon 5? Shut up. Okay, so if you'd asked me when I was a child, I would have said Maroon 5. Now I'd have to say No Doubt. That's because Adam Levine has gotten to be a little embarrassing. What about No Doubt versus Fergie? Man, I think I'm like some basic white girl. He's probably, you probably do, I'm yeah. It's like No Doubt, like the top of your list and like I can compare them to anybody and it's going to be like No Doubt, No Doubt. No Doubt or Joni Mitchell? Joni Mitchell. Yeah, Joni Mitchell. Joni, Joni Mitchell is actually at the top of my list. I do not think you could have anyone top her. You really don't. You can try. Oh my gosh. Just tell me, who's your top musician? Who would beat out all of the blank or blank? Modern top musicians would be, in my lifetime, would be brand new. It was one of my favorite bands of all time. Chris Caraba, Dashboard Confessional. I listen to a ton of classic rock, but there's an emotional connection that I'm never going to have because I wasn't 16 when that music came out. I wasn't getting my first girlfriend. I wasn't in high school. I wasn't... These imprinted memories we all have of some of our favorite music isn't because it's the best music. It's because of what we were doing when it came out. Our formative years or turning 21 or getting a car, that's going to most likely be your favorite music. That makes sense. I discovered Joni Mitchell when I was 19 and I have so many memories of experiencing emotions for the first time and listening to her. Thinking of emotions, Al Green or Marvin Gaye? Al Green. Marvin Gaye. Wow, we really have different tastes. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that on that note. Final one. What do you think the best album of all time is? Of all time. Not just modern music or your favorite. What do you think the best recorded album of all time is? I'm going to say something that's, I guess, super cliche. But I've had this thought in my head way before someone asked this question. Like I've, I've just thought of this twice a year since I discovered it. And it, it's Sgt. Pepper. Oh, that, that's what I was I think that's really? the best yeah I'm not kidding I thought for sure you'd have something more obscure but yeah it's a masterpiece and it's got seven genres within the music even some songs switch from like 
was this recorded in New Delhi and then Chicago and UK. And it's just wild. It's an experience. It's a trip. It's like you're getting high without ingesting any drugs. There's a good message. It's almost like a concept album. There's a little bit of a narrative and a story and the songs bleed together. That wasn't something that happened back then too often. Now it's more common. Yeah, Sgt. Pepper's is like maybe the greatest album of all time. Yeah, I agree. I think Brian just fist bumped me. Very interesting. I'm really happy that we agree on the best album. I was honestly like when you were saying it, it was kind of in the back of my mind. I was like, maybe he's going to say Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Cult Band. Maybe he's going to say it. Greatest album of all time. And you know, you can't listen to one of the songs. If you're going to listen to it, you have to listen to it from start to finish. That's right. You have to listen to the whole thing. What about, oh, one more comparison. This one's going to hurt. Well, you know what, Brian? I'm just shut up. I can't believe you. Listen to the past and then Billy Joel, Elton John. Billy Joel. I would say Elton John. The way I'm picturing this question is like if I had to kill one of them and only one of them gets. This is what you've been thinking of the whole time. Like when I was like Joni Mitchell versus Brandon Newman. I was thinking of all of this. Like if only one of them could have existed in our world. I was thinking of who's the better musician, not who if I, if I could. Yeah, so it's like better so that if you had to kill the other one, the world would still be better off. Yeah, so who's the better musician means which musician would the world still be okay if we lost? Okay, Ryan, I think that there are people that would not be in this world if Marvin Gaye were not in our world. Oh my God, that's the funny way to think about it. I think all musicians are responsible for babies. I might be responsible for some babies, which would be cool. But now do you re now can you re-examine the Beatles versus Rolling Stones again? If you had to only have one of those bands exist in the universe, of course you would say the Beatles. People actually say it's one of the most surprising things about me that I prefer the Rolling Stones to the Beatles. I'm not kidding. Every time I've said this, everyone's been like, really, Paige? That's what you think? Individually, I listen, I think the Beatles probably have had more of an impact on our world and other musicians. You can pick each member of the Beatles and look at their solo careers. And yeah, I would say Beatles probably have had a greater impact on our world. And also, if we didn't have the Beatles, we wouldn't have the greatest album of all time, which is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Cup Band. So I guess you're right, Ryan. I guess you're right on all of these except for Joni Mitchell. I'll take that. All right. So Ryan's wife just walked in. So I think that concludes our interview. Thanks for coming on my podcast, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you for having me and letting me talk about something besides, I don't know, my favorite Seth Godin book. Yeah. Okay. Will you record a Joni Mitchell song for me, please? Maybe. I'll think about it. Okay. You should record, like... Ryan did not end up recording a Joni Mitchell song for me, even though I took his beautiful life shopping on my day off. No free man in Paris. No honey you turn me on on my radio. Not even Big Yellow Taxi. But that's okay. His discography had many songs for me to pick from. There were so many I thought about ending this episode with, from the one that landed him an interview with Sony, to the one that saved someone's marriage, to a Korean bop I really liked, but I landed on something else. Before interviewing him, and while in the process of making this episode, I of course listened to his song several times. However, there was one I listened to probably a hundred times more than other songs. It was like an earworm. I loved it. I just couldn't stop playing it. I couldn't stop listening to it. And I'm going to play it for you all right now. Writing songs is hilarious. The motors get mysterious. So where to go? Here it is. Was what you asked myself. I'm on the verge of craziness from all the hype and laziness. And plus, 
the way I contradict the workplace common suffixes And I will try and twist the twist with double rhymes and mind and bliss Clever pattern, several phrases, anything to raise a wager Spread it like a new disease, I'll catch your phrases Can't be beat, then stamp it with your excellence But make the chorus sound like this Yes. Yeah.